Hello, and welcome to today's session all about President Dwight D. Eisenhower and American foreign policy and politics in the middle to late 1950s. I'm Dr. S. Mocker. Let's get into it. The United States approaching the election of 1952 was at a little bit of a political crossroads. In particular, many Republicans saw this as their moment, their chance to potentially seize back control of the White House. If you think about it, since 1932, Democrats had dominated the White House, first with Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was elected to an unprecedented four terms as president, and then his successor, Harry Truman, who completed the remainder of Roosevelt's fourth term and then won election on his own in 1948. As we're approaching the election of 1952, there's a conversation about where the Republican Party and where conservatives want to go. And there are two new developments within political conservative thought that emerge in the 1950s, mostly as a reaction to the strain of liberalism of the New Deal time period, which continued into the aftermath of World War II, and also as a desire in the context of the Cold War to reclaim what freedom had meant. Because in the Great Depression, Franklin Delano Roosevelt increasingly defined freedom as what we call equality of condition or a basic standard of living. So that's part of the reason why one of the four freedoms that Roosevelt talked about in World War II was freedom from want. And many conservative thinkers made the argument that that was an imperfect understanding of what freedom actually was. So let's Let's look at these two new strains within the conservative movement because they're not only important to talk about in the context of the 1950s, but we also see their presence within the modern Republican Party today. The first of these movements are the libertarian movement. Libertarians hate large government. That's kind of their the hallmark for being a libertarian. You want government to be as small and efficient as possible. This largely emerges as a reaction to the New Deal, where government not only became much larger, but also gained a lot more power, particularly over regulation of the economy. And libertarians believed that in order to be truly free, you needed to have a small government and a maximally free economy, and then you could ensure personal freedom. And that's basically what Milton Friedman, the economist who's most notably associated with early libertarians, noted in his book, Capitalism and Freedom in 1962, arguing that if you wanted to maintain political and individual freedom, you needed to have a truly free market. So Friedman, in his book, argued that the government should divest of as many functions as as possible. So we should privatize many government functions. Think about things like, for example, the post office. We should abolish social security. We should get rid of minimum wages and also get rid of the concept of a graduated income tax. Friedman and libertarians made the argument that the government could not and should not regulate either the economy or the individual. So the thought process for libertarians was that so long as whatever you were doing in your personal life was not harming others, that you should be allowed to do it, whether that meant things like drinking alcohol or gambling or smoking pot, that you should be allowed to make choices for yourself. This is their big difference with the new conservative movement that emerges in the 1950s. New conservatives argued that if America wanted to win the Cold War, they needed to change both intellectually and morally. New conservatives believed that the toleration of difference, which had dominated the 30s and the 40s, this embrace 
embrace of cultural pluralism, of a diversity of ideas, was getting in the way of the concept of absolute truth. Richard Weaver in his book, Ideas Have Consequences, largely heralded as one of the earliest new conservative texts, argued that the West was morally bankrupt, and if they wanted to win the Battle of the Hearts and Minds during the Cold War, they needed to return to Christian values. So in other words, the United States lost their way, and we needed Jesus. In many ways, new conservatives aren't really that new when it comes to their ideas about morality being important. In many ways, this is a return to a very old concept in American history called moral liberty. We talk about moral liberty a lot in History of 1301 with the Puritans who settled New England. And moral liberty believed that you should only give people the freedom to make the right choices. So what does that look like? Natural liberty meant complete freedom. And the Puritans who originally kind of came up with this idea of moral liberty said that that was too much freedom, that people could, yes, choose to do good things, but they could also choose to do evil. So the Puritans said the better thing to do was to use your law system to make it so that people were encouraged to only do good things. This meant regulating morality through law, and new conservatives joined on this as well. So the idea is if you think, for example, drinking is bad or smoking marijuana is bad, that you outlaw it. This won't stop completely all the behavior. Some people may still choose to do it, even though there are legal penalties, but this does attach a particular level of threat and punishment to engaging in what are the so-called bad activities. So you can see how this clashes with libertarians who believe that individuals should be allowed to do whatever they want in order to be completely free. So the question within the conservative movement in the early 1950s is do you want a free man or a good man? How comfortable are you with the degree of the government telling you what you could and could not do in your personal life? Libertarians wanted government to stay away from your personal life at all costs, whereas new conservatives wanted the government to regulate what they saw as bad or immoral behavior. For libertarians, the problem with American society was there was not enough unrestrained individualism, whereas with new conservatives, the problem was that there was way too much individualism and, as a consequence, Americans making immoral and bad choices. What unites these two very different ideas, libertarians and new conservatives, are that they both agree on a smaller government being ideal, and they both support the United States in the Cold War. So both of these conservative movements support the United States and their effort to win the Cold War against the Soviet Union. So this is going to be the glue that hold uh, libertarians and new conservatives together. And once that kind of common enemy goes away, once the Cold War ends, when we get to the 1990s, we're going to see more tensions emerge between libertarians and new conservatives then because they no longer have the Cold War as a common end goal. So all of these conversations were happening as Dwight D. Eisenhower was mulling a invitation to run for president for both the Republican and the Democratic parties. Yes, you heard that correctly. In 1952, both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party invited Dwight D. Eisenhower to be their candidate for president. President. You cannot make this up. So why was it that Republicans and Democrats both liked Ike? This is his campaign slogan, I like Ike. Well, Eisenhower had really good military credentials. He had been a lifelong army guy, long career in the military, he served as a general. He was the commander of NATO during the late 1940s. So on the military portion of 
the election in terms of what the United States could do to prepare for the Cold War. He has solid street cred there. He does not have a really strong personal political affiliation in either direction. So when both parties approach him to run for president on the basis that he is a good, solid candidate when it comes to the Cold War, Eisenhower made his choice based on who would be the likely pick if he turned that party down. He decided to choose to run as a Republican in part because he felt that if he did not choose the Republican nomination, the Republican Party would choose a frontrunner who was a little too isolationist. Once Eisenhower chose the Republican Party as his party of choice, the campaign slogan, I Like Ike, becomes very popular and It really plays off of not necessarily his military credentials in the Cold War, but more his general likability. If you look at images and posters of Dwight D. Eisenhower, he looks like everybody's grandpa. He looks very warm. He looks very friendly. He looks like, you know, a guy you'd want to sit down and have a beer with. And Eisenhower was even popular in the American South, despite running as a Republican, because Southern Democrats were increasingly unhappy with their place in the party following the embrace of civil rights platform in 1948. So Dwight D. Eisenhower's running mate was Richard Nixon, the young congressman who had gained acclaim for his role in the hearings about State Department employee and suspected Soviet spy Alger Hiss. Nixon also had service in the military during World War II, although not as high of a rank as the career military officer Eisenhower. And Nixon, as he's campaigning, promotes the Republican Party as the champion of the common man, arguing that the average American was suffering from an excess of taxation and economic regulation. And in the midst of the campaign, Nixon was accused of accepting illegal campaign donations. So Nixon, in one of the earliest examples of politicians using the medium of television to address allegations of political impropriety, goes on to TV and gives his famous Checkers speech. So in the Checkers speech, Nixon denies having accepted any campaign gifts with one exception, his dog named Checkers, which is where the speech gets its name. So Eisenhower and Nixon recover from that bubble, and Eisenhower easily wins the election of 1952 and easily wins re-election in 1956, despite the fact that the Republican Party as a whole performed fairly poorly in those two elections. Usually in politics in a presidential election year, we observe what we call the coattail effect. So in other words, the party that wins the White House generally has better results and wins more races down the ballot for things like Senate, Representative, and the state and local races than the opposing party. This did not happen in 1952 or 1956. Eisenhower's popular, not necessarily the Republican Party as a whole. In fact, for most of the 1950s, Congress is led by a Democratic majority. So when Eisenhower comes into office, he immediately gets into a little bit of friction with his own party, in part because Eisenhower was not willing to simply toe the party line. He had complaints with both the Libertarians or the New Conservatives and their vision. Even though Eisenhower recognizes that Republicans want 
to shrink the size of the national government. He believed that there was a great deal of wisdom in not eliminating New Deal programs. And much like Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Truman before him, he believed the government could play a positive role in building up the national economy. So Eisenhower not only does not go after New Deal programs with a hatchet, he actually expands key parts of the New Deal. For example, in 1955, Eisenhower and Congress decide to include agricultural workers in the Social Security's pension program. Remember, agricultural workers and domestic service workers have been left out of the initial Social Security legislation in 1935. And Eisenhower's support of New Deal programs helped to ensure their long-term survival by giving it an air of bipartisan support, right? Prior to this, New Deal programs like Social Security had only ever existed with Democrats in the White House. And now Eisenhower's support helps them to become a little bit more of a permanent fixture in American politics. Eisenhower also makes good on his promise of using the government to build up the economy. As we talked about in an earlier podcast about 1950s culture. The interstate highway system is finally greenlit during Eisenhower's time in office, which is oftentimes why it's nicknamed the Eisenhower Interstate System. The National Defense Education Act of 1957 is designed to help directly fund college education, particularly for students who are interested in going into STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics in light of the Cold War. And during Eisenhower's time in office, there is a little bit of of a truce between business and labor unions. The American Federation of Labor and the Congress of Industrial Organizations merged together in 1955 to form the AFL-CIO, together representing about 35% of all non-agricultural workers in the economy. And many unions signed new agreements with businesses in exchange for industrial harmony and worker benefits like pensions, health insurance, and wage increases, promising to leave business decisions to management if they take care of workers with those benefits. With the 1950s economy booming, both union and non-union workers alike benefit from this economic growth in the form of rising wages and buying power. But as we get to the end of the 1950s, we start to see a little bit of this era of truce between labor unions and businesses collapse as companies increasingly push back against unions and try to move industries to less industrialized areas, both in the American South and the suburbs, so that they can take advantage of both cheaper land and also non-unionized labor. So Eisenhower's appeal to both the Republican and Democratic Party lay mostly in his military background in context of the Cold War. And so a lot of what we're going to talk about for the rest of this podcast is about Eisenhower's foreign policy. In 1952, the United States test the hydrogen bomb for the first time. The hydrogen bomb was even more deadly and dangerous than the atomic bomb, and unlike with the atomic bomb, where it took the Soviets four years to develop their own version, the Soviets developed the same technology within a year. At this same time, both the Soviets and the United States have been increasingly developing long-range bombers. So this meant when Eisenhower was elected into office and began his term as president, that the Soviets and the Americans had reached a stage that we call mutually assured destruction. So in other words, because of the proliferation of nuclear weapons and new weapons like the hydrogen bomb, because of the development of long-range bombers, this meant that if the United States should launch 
a bomb against the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union would have time to respond by launching their own bomb and we would both end up obliterated in a nuclear holocaust. This meant that Eisenhower had to navigate a very delicate uh, foreign policy situation. Now, delicate does not exactly describe his Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles. Dulles was a lot more antagonistic than Eisenhower, and Dulles relished the potential use of American atomic power. Dulles embraced a policy known as massive retaliation, in which any attack, not only on the United States, but on one of our allies, would result in the U.S. deploying nuclear weapons against the Soviet Union. And by any attack, I mean anything, not just a nuclear attack, that we would be willing to respond with nuclear weapons to any kind of attack against the United States or our allies. That's what we call nuclear brinkmanship. And Dulles's very public expression of this antagonistic policy, along with the reality that when Eisenhower first came into office, there were only 1,000 nuclear warheads, but by 1960, there are 18,000 nuclear warheads in the world, led to widespread fear in the American populace of a potential nuclear war. In the 1950s, a lot of people start building bomb shelters in their backyards. Children participate in duck and cover drills, their schools, where they are told to get underneath their desks in the event of a nuclear attack. The desks would not actually help them survive the nuclear holocaust, but if there was any if they were not incinerated, it would actually just make it easier for authorities to locate their bodies. But it was meant to give school children some sense of, of peace and like they were doing something to try to save themselves. Now, Eisenhower was not as aggressive as Dulles. He saw the wisdom in trying to dial down the rhetoric. And in fact, the idea of dialing back the rhetoric of the Cold War became more possible in 1953 for two reasons. Number one, the Korean War ended in a stalemate, declaration of truce and ceasefire, and in the same year, in 1953, Joseph Stalin died. So now the Soviet Union has a new leader. There is initially a little bit of jockeying for power, trying to figure out who will succeed. Stalin, if you're interested in black comedies that talk about Soviet history, I highly recommend the movie Death of Stalin, which talks about this and is actually accurate, other than a compressed timeline in the movie. In the end, Nikita Khrushchev will come out on top. Khrushchev becomes the new leader of the Soviet Union. He will meet with Eisenhower, and what gives Eisenhower hope that a better, more peaceful relationship with the Soviet Union and Khrushchev is possible is that Khrushchev publicly revealed and denounced Stalin's mass murders. In fact, Stalin had a higher body count in terms of people he had killed in the Soviet Union than Adolf Hitler did in Germany. Initial signs were good that the United States and the Soviet Union could have a more peaceful relationship, but this unravels quickly. In 1956, an attempted anti-communist rebellion in Hungary is crushed by the Soviets. The rebels in Hungary appealed to Eisenhower for help, but Eisenhower said, look, it's in Eastern Europe, it's under the Soviet sphere of control, we're not getting involved in that. There was a ban on nuclear testing that was achieved between 
1958-1961 after more and more people became aware of the negative health effects of nuclear bombs, particularly the National Committee for a Sane Nuclear Policy takes the lead in raising these issues, but this ban on testing expires in 1961. What really wrecks the potential better relationship completely is when the Soviets shoot down an American U-2 plane flying over so- Soviet territory and, are, and the Soviets accuse the United States of espionage. The United States is also wrestling with something that will complicate their very black and white understanding of the Cold War. And that's the phenomenon of decolonization. So decolonization is the process in which a lot of these former colonies of places like Great Britain and France and Germany and others start to achieve independence after World War II. These decolonization movements sometimes are peaceful, sometimes we have to wars of independence. And throughout Africa and Asia, where the decolonization movement is taking place, we do see a tendency to embrace more radical politics as these nations become independent. Many independence movements see socialism as a way to try to address and fix heavy dependence on foreign nations and imperial homelands. Many nations had used these colonies essentially just to get raw materials and had not really developed a full-fledged, well-rounded economy in these former colonies. And the United States, since the time of Woodrow Wilson, had committed to this idea of self-determination, that every people, every nation-state should be allowed to choose their own form of government. But what do you do when the form of government that a nation wants to choose is communism? Because then the U.S. support for self-determination immediately comes into conflict with the U.S. policy of containment or stopping the spread of communism. And the United States, when faced with this dilemma, do we allow a nation to self-determine and choose communism or do we block the expansion of communism, always chooses containment. Now, even though the United States and the Soviet Union pushed the Cold War as you have to, you're either with us or against us, most of these newly decolonized nations wanted to maintain neutrality or what they called non-alignment. And we see this at meetings like the Bandung Conference in 1955, a meeting of African and Asian nations in Indonesia to discuss cooperation between these newly independent nations and to potentially form an alternate neutral block of nations that could be an alternative to both the United States and the Soviet Union. Now, the United States was not afraid to get involved in a lot of these independence movements throughout the world, and they oftentimes got involved to shift what they saw as a dangerous flirtation with communism or leftist radical politics that could lead to communism. This is where we start to get the United States policy of regime change. The Central Intelligence Agency, or CIA, get involved in places like Guatemala and Iran during Eisenhower's time in office. In both Guatemala and Iran, their nations had nationalist leaders who weren't communist, but did want to wean their countries off of economic dependence on outside nations and the control of outside nations through trade. In Guatemala, Jacobo Arbenz Guzman wanted land reform specifically to address the poverty of the working class. This idea of land reform threatened a U.S. company called United Fruit Company, and so the CIA supported the overthrow of Arbenz Guzman in 1953. By the way, United Fruit Company still exists. After the Cold War, they changed their name to Shake 
take off this association with regime change in Guatemala, you can today still buy Chiquita bananas at your local grocery store. In Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh nationalized the Anglo-Iranian oil company as a way to get rid of outside control of oil, one of the most valuable commodities in Iran. He was ousted in 1954, again by a CIA-backed coup, and the United States installed the Shah in his place, which will later come back to bite us in the butt in the 1970s, which we'll talk about in a future class. What the CIA was doing in places like Guatemala and Iran did not become public knowledge until the 1970s and the fallout of the attempted impeachment and resignation of Richard Nixon, the church committee conducted a lot of investigations and found that both the FBI and the CIA had been used by presidents of both political parties since the 1950s in ways that did not have congressional oversight and approval. So this is not public knowledge in the 1950s, what is happening overseas with the CIA. What is the more public face of foreign relations is is the Eisenhower Doctrine. Particularly in the Middle East, there's a concern over Egypt. Egypt at this time period is led by Abdel Nasser, who envisioned the unification of all Arab peoples across the Middle East. And in 1956, Nasser had seized control of the Suez Canal, which had been originally built by the French, connecting the Mediterranean with the Indian Ocean, and Nasser declares it to be the sole possession of Egypt, which prompts an invasion by British, French, and Israeli troops to liberate the canal and return it back to international control. And none of those groups bother to inform or involve the United States, which is part of the reason why in the following year, 1957, Eisenhower issues what becomes known as the Eisenhower Doctrine, a pledge to defend allies in the Middle East who are fighting communism or homegrown, more leftist nationalism. And under this policy of the Eisenhower Doctrine, the United States sent troops into Lebanon in 1958 to prevent take over by Egypt. It's also during Eisenhower's time in office that the U.S. escalates its involvement in Vietnam. Vietnam had been an independent nation following their own successful revolution for independence from Chinese colonialism hundreds of years ago, but in the 1800s, they became colonized by France. And the Vietnamese had long agitated for independence. As a young man, Ho Chi Minh, who will be the leader of this independence movement in Vietnam against the French, had actually gone to Paris during the Treaty of Versailles negotiations to end World War I to make an appeal on behalf of colonized people like Vietnam that they be allowed their independence in the wake of World War I, but he was rejected. Following World War II, the Vietnamese resume an armed struggle for independence from France, and between 1945 to 1954, the French are engaging in a war in Vietnam for control. Both Harry Truman and Dwight D. Eisenhower funneled billions of dollars of aid money to the French, effectively meaning the United States paid up to 80% of the cost of the war. But when France was clearly losing in 1954 and on the verge of defeat, Eisenhower refused to send in troops. This meant that in 1954, France negotiated a peace treaty called the Geneva Accords with Vietnam. So Vietnam in the Geneva Accords was given its independence. However, Vietnam was temporarily divided in half between 
between North and South Vietnam until 1956. The plan was in 1956, elections would be held for the first unified government of Vietnam, and then Vietnam would fully achieve their independence as a unified nation. In the meantime, as of 1954, North Vietnam was controlled by Ho Chi Minh, and South Vietnam by Ngo Dinh Diem, who was a staunch anti-communist and had the support of the U.S. government. Ngo refused to hold elections in 1956 in violation of the Geneva Accords, and because Ngo refused to hold elections per the terms of the peace treaty, a guerrilla war started to break out against his control in South Vietnam. So at this point in time, the United States is involved in Vietnam, at least monetarily. What's going to escalate our military involvement there is going to be during John F. Kennedy's time in office when we start sending in military advisors to help the South Vietnamese. The reason the United States got involved in what should have been a colonial independence dispute between France and Vietnam was again because of the fear that the Vietnamese might embrace communism. Although Ho Chi Minh was not initially a communist, he became more communist leaning towards the end of his political career. And by the time of Vietnamese victory in the war against the United States, Vietnam becomes pretty much solely communist. So we've talked earlier about the United States in the 1950s being a culture of conformity, where it was far safer to not stick out, to not be different, to not express dissent for fear of being swept up in anti-communism and the Red Scare. However, the 1950s does have dissent if you know where to look. Certainly, there was a lot of dissent and critique of American culture in the 1950s and academia. Sociologists like C. Wright Mills argued in the 1950s that American politics had become dominated by a power elite of businessmen, politicians, and military leaders. And that meant that freedom and participation in government had essentially been stripped from average American citizens so that we no longer had an equal voice in our government because it was dominated by an elite. We also had psychologists weighing in on how 1950s America created a culture ripe with anxiety. David Riesman in his book The Lonely Crowd in 1950 argued that this mass society of consumption and of conformity left Americans lonely and anxious. And while they had adopted a strategy of conformity to try to ensure some sense of stability and normalcy, that it actually furthered a lack of independent thought and actions. So that Americans were just kind of following the norm without questioning rather than engaging in critical thinking and analysis and independent thought. Multiple scholarly works throughout the 1950s identified modern work culture and corporations, suburban life, traditional gender roles, and other elements of American society as deeply problematic and unfulfilling. But a lot of Americans don't tend to listen to scholars at universities and in fact, we've seen, even with like textbooks and education, usually there's at least a 10 to 20 year gap between what scholars and higher education are doing and when that actually translates into the mainstream. Criticizing American conformity became something of a cottage industry 
and academia, but few mainstream Americans are taking notice. And instead, if you're looking for more widespread dissent in the 1950s, you need to look at youth culture. The baby boom generation, the earliest of them, born in 1945, become teenagers by the late 1950s. And the first wave of baby boom teenagers in the late 50s start to expose a generation gap, a profound difference in culture between these baby boomers and their older parents, and an increasing sense of alienation. These young boomers were challenging this notion of conformity, of needing to achieve the American dream of a house in the suburbs with a car and a corporate job, right, stay-at-home mom. Increasingly, these teenagers were not buying into that concept. We can see evidence of dissent in youth culture in books like J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye, published in 1951, in Hollywood films like Rebel Without a Cause and The Blackboard Jungle, both released in 1955, and in rock and roll music. Some of the earliest rock and roll music comes out of the late 1940s. In fact, What's dubbed the earliest rock and roll song is a song called Rocket 88. If you go onto YouTube and you listen to a clip of that song, wait until you get all the way to the end and you'll hear a distorted guitar. That is the first time we hear a distorted guitar, which will become a hallmark of rock and roll on the recording. And this is from the late 1940s. Rock and roll music originates among African Americans, rock and roll was originally 1950s slang for sex. How 1950s rock and roll African American songs start to jump over into the mainstream is not only by the increasing popularity of African American artists like Chuck Berry and Little Richard, but by white artists like Elvis Presley. So Elvis Presley takes rock and roll music and makes it more mainstream and appealing to a white teenage audience. And Elvis Presley, while we today would view his singing and his dancing as relatively tame in an age where we see twerking, Elvis Presley's dance moves for the time were considered highly provocative. In fact, during TV appearances, very frequently he was filmed only from the waist up so that the cameras were not capturing his gyrating hips for fear of being too scandalous. And American teenagers loved this music. They saw this music as the height of rebellion, that they're listening to a genre named after sex, that they're listening to African American artists and musicians, that they're, you know, know, listening and watching these performances that are more provocative, and their parents hate it. Their parents hate it so much, which makes the teenagers love it even more. Usually this is a symbol of the generation gap, right? The music that you find cool, your parents hate. So this is definitely true in the 1950s. Another place to look at dissent in the 1950s is among college students. So college students in the 1950s aren't boomers. They're a little bit too old to be boomers, but we do start to see a movement called the beats emerge in cities and college towns, where small groups of young people, often college students, start to critique mainstream culture through the mediums of poetry and literature. Beat poets rejected middle-class values, they rejected materialism and militarism, and throughout beat culture, you see uh, them advocating for a spontaneous lifestyle devoted to peace and pleasure, particularly achieving pleasure through sexual experimentation and drug experimentation. One of the classic novels of this time period is Jack Kerouac's On the Road, published in 1957, but really the height of beat culture, if you really kind of want to see the essence of the beat movement, is Allen Ginsberg 
Ginsburg's poem Howl, published in 1955, which criticizes conformity and materialism. The beat movement, though, is always much smaller than the white teenage fascination with rock and roll, and dissent in the 1950s among white people would largely remain cultural through the exploration of music and film, or it would remain among the elite. So think about academics and the college students that are part of the beat movement. Really, widespread political dissent among white audiences doesn't really start to emerge until the 1960s. But the other area that we look at and find dissent in the 1950s is in the civil rights movement. More on that next time. Until next time, I'm Dr. S. Mocker.